Hello, listeners. This is Iris, and this is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 7th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's start by reading the weather forecast for today, this coming from KCRG. Cloudier and windier Wednesday. Showers and storms still possible for Thursday. Warm temperatures stick around for another day or two, but changes aren't too far away at this point. Temperatures this morning on the thermometer are starting off several degrees warmer than the past few days, with readings in the 30s. Winds will be a bit stronger from the southeast today, though, which is keeping wind chills early in the 20s. Parts of the area are experiencing some locally dense fog, too, with visibility of a mile or less possible in the counties near the Mississippi River from Dubuque southward. A dense fog advisory is in effect for some of those areas through mid-morning. Wind conditions should generally improve. As temperatures increase through the day, wind chill will become less of an issue. But the combination of cloudier skies and windier conditions, with gusts between 20 to 30 miles per hour this afternoon and evening, means that it won't feel quite as pleasant as the sunnier and calmer days we've seen this week. Highs will still be near or past records for the date in the low to mid-50s. Temperatures stay very mild overnight, with stronger southeasterly winds continuing, with lows in the mid-40s. A few showers become possible as soon as around midnight tonight, but the chance becomes higher closer to daybreak on Thursday. These showers will be fairly quick-moving, so rainfall amounts will be somewhat limited. Be ready for a potentially wet morning commute on Thursday. That first round of shower activity likely moves on by mid to late morning, giving us a break into the early afternoon. Strong southerly winds, with gusts between 30 to 40 miles per hour, will take place during this time. We may even see a little bit of sunshine, which would help push highs into the upper 50s to low 60s, and breaking records around the area. It also sets up the possibility for a second round of scattered showers and storms that could develop after 3 o'clock p.m., quickly moving to the northeast. Storms could be a bit on the strong side, though widespread severe weather looks unlikely at this time. The second round of potential wet weather should exit the area early on Thursday night, leaving behind blustery but dry conditions into Friday morning. Temperatures will slide into the 30s overnight, potentially rebounding toward the upper 40s or near 50. Clouds will be a bit more likely the farther north you go, with an outside chance of a light rain or snow shower may affect areas near the Minnesota border. The vast majority of the area should stay dry. Cooler air will continue to enter the region into the weekend, with lows in the low to mid-20s and highs in the upper 30s to low 40s. While notably chillier than what we're getting most of this week, it's still several degrees above normal for this time of year and continues this winter's overall warm trend. A mix of sun and clouds will be possible at times over the weekend, with dry weather looking likely. A disturbance on Tuesday now looks to stay a little farther south of the area, 
so the rain and snow chance that was present there has been removed. Instead, we're watching for a slight potential of a rain or snow shower by next Thursday. Temperatures during this time stay fairly consistent, with more 20s overnight and upper 30s to low 40s during the day. For those with Valentine's Day plans, the weather looks like it should cooperate. Let's turn now to the stories on the front page of The Courier today. Reynolds sending help to border. Iowa law enforcement will assist Texas security efforts for a third time. Story written by Aaron Murphy. And it begins with a photograph where we see a elevated bridge in the background and the sun is shining brightly and it's behind soldiers standing at attention. And the caption says, Members of the National Guard stand as Texas Governor Greg Abbott and fellow governors hold a news conference along the Rio Grande. Dateline Des Moines. After a weekend trip to Texas, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Monday she plans to, for a third time, send law enforcement officials to assist Texas authorities with security efforts at the U.S.-Mexico border. During a news conference Monday at the Iowa Capitol, Reynolds repeated her criticism of how Democratic President Joe Biden's administration has enforced federal immigration laws and cast doubt that Congress would be able to pass border security legislation. She traveled to Eagle Pass, Texas, on Sunday to join Texas Governor Greg Abbott, along with 12 other Republican governors, at a news conference where she did not speak. Back in Iowa Monday, Reynolds said she is working with Texas authorities to once again send Iowa State Patrol officers and National Guard troops to aid Texas authorities with border security efforts. Quote, For three years, Texas has been on the front line of the most serious national security and humanitarian crisis of our time, and Governor Abbott has led the response, Reynolds told reporters Monday. Having no option but to protect itself, Texas is enforcing the law by denying illegal entry and detaining those who attempt it. If the federal government won't do the job protecting Americans, the states will step in, unquote. Other states' assistance to Texas is needed because, she said, the federal government has not sufficiently addressed historical spikes in illegal migrant crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border. She attributed increases in fentanyl seizures, drug overdose deaths, and human trafficking to illegal immigration issues. The details of the pending deployment are still being worked out with the Texas authorities, Reynolds said. It will be the third time Reynolds has deployed Iowans to assist Texas authorities with border security. In 2021, she dispatched 30 Iowa State Patrol officers. Last year, Reynolds sent 31 Iowa State Patrol officers and 109 Iowa National Guard troops for separate one-month deployments. The pending mission will again be paid for with federal pandemic relief funding from American Rescue Plan that Biden signed into law in 2021 and Reynolds opposed. Last year's deployment cost $2 million, according to the governor's office. The governor's office said Reynolds's trip to Texas was paid for by Republicans' Governors Association. 
the Iowa National Guard has deployed to the U.S.-Mexico border on three other occasions since 2020 in response to a separate federal request, the governor's office said. According to the Associated Press, reporting on federal figures, arrests for illegal border crossings from Mexico reached an all-time high in December since monthly numbers have been released. The Border Patrol tallied 249,785 arrests on the Mexican border in December, up 31% from 191,112 in November, and up 13% from 222,018 in December of 2022, the previous all-time high, the AP reported. Reynolds, as she has on multiple occasions in the past, excoriated the Biden administration's enforcement of border security policies, for which she blamed the influx of illegal border crossings. Biden has said there are limitations on what the president can accomplish without congressional action. Asked Monday to comment after the news conferences, the White House pointed to remarks Biden made on January 30th to reporters. Quote, I've done all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked from the day, very day I got into office. Give me the border patrol. Give me the people. Give me the people, the judges. Give me the people who can stop this and make it work right, Biden said. Border security legislation is being considered by the U.S. Senate, but Reynolds declined when asked Monday to call for its passage, instead reiterating that she believes the Biden administration should be stronger in its enforcement of immigration policy. She also expressed doubt that the Republican-led U.S. House and Democrat-led U.S. Senate would reach an agreement. Quote, Both political parties are guilty and not coming to the table, sitting down and having an adult conversation about what we do moving forward, Reynolds said. I don't have a lot of confidence in no disrespect to the people that serve out in Washington, D.C. I'm grateful for them. But listen, in this government, I don't have a lot of confidence in really too much getting done, unquote. Advocates rally again for LGBTQ concerns. Organizers lament ongoing bouts with Republican bills. Story written by Aaron Murphy of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. And the article begins with a photograph of Courtney Reyes, executive director of the LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa, and she's speaking behind a podium at a rally during the day of LGBTQ advocacy at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines on Monday. Dateline Des Moines, Courtney Reyes, speaking to dozens of LGBTQ Iowans and advocates gathered at the Iowa Capitol on Monday called this year's legislative session a roller coaster and lamented what she described as a need to keep coming to the Capitol to defend LGBTQ Iowans' rights. Reyes, executive director of the LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa, kicked off a rally Monday at the Iowa Capitol during a day of LGBTQ advocacy. Quote, This has just been a roller coaster of a session. Ray said, pointing to last week when one legislative proposal to change the way transgender Iowans 
are protected under the state's Civil Rights Act, failed to advance, and on the next day, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds introduced new legislation that would define man and woman in state law and require transgender Iowans to note both their pre- and post-transition genders on their driver's license. Quote, After that huge win with the failure of the proposed Civil Rights Act changes, another piece of harmful legislation was introduced by the governor of our state, Ray said. Quote, We call it the Trans Erasure Bill. It's harmful and just pure evil, unquote. When she introduced her proposal last week, Reynolds called the legislation, quote, common sense, and said it protects women's rights in spaces. She compared it to a state law passed in 2022 that prohibits transgender girls and women from competing in girls' and women's athletics. Quote, the bill allows the law to recognize biological differences while forbidding unfair discrimination, Reynolds said last week in a statement. Multiple Democratic state lawmakers also spoke at the rally. Pronoun fight. Just prior to Monday's rally, a legislative hearing was held in the morning on a proposal to prohibit schools from disciplining any teachers who refused to use a student's preferred pronouns. The proposal, House File 2139, advanced on the support of the two Republicans on the subcommittee panel, Representatives Henry Stone of Forest City and Bill Gustoff of Des Moines. Supporters of the legislation, including the Christian conservative advocacy group The Family Leader, and two mothers, said the proposal is needed to protect educators' freedom of speech and religion. One of the mothers said she teaches her children that there are only two genders, each has its own pronoun, and that teachers using a student's preferred pronouns is indoctrination. Seven students or parents of transgender children spoke in fierce opposition to the proposal. Many of them pointed out that last year, State House Republicans passed legislation that requires parents to notify educators about their approval of their child using a different name or pronoun, and are now proposing legislation that would allow teachers to ignore that. Quote, what about protecting my parents' rights? Barry Stevens, a 13-year-old student who uses they and them pronouns, asked during the public comment portion of the hearing on the proposal. Quote, they filled out the notification. Now you're saying that doesn't matter. Teachers can now just choose to ignore that. Quote, if teachers can't handle basic dignity for all, then they have no business teaching in public schools. Say no to this bill and go pick on someone your own size, Stevens said. By advancing out of subcommittee, House File 2139 now is eligible for consideration by the full House Education Committee. Trump immunity denied. Federal court says he's subject to prosecution. Challenge is expected. The story comes from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. A federal appeals panel ruled Tuesday that Donald Trump can face trial on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election, sharply rejecting the former president's claims that he is immune from prosecution while setting the stage for additional challenges 
that could further delay the case. The ruling is significant not only for its stark repudiation of Trump's novel immunity claims, but also because it breathes life back into the landmark prosecution that was effectively frozen for weeks as the court considered the appeal. The one-month gap between when the court heard arguments and issued its ruling created uncertainty about the timing of a trial in a packed election year, with the judge overseeing the case last week canceling the initial March 4th date. Trump's team vowed to appeal, which could postpone the case by weeks or months, particularly if the Supreme Court agrees to take it up. The appeals panel, which included two appointees by President Joe Biden and one Republican-appointed judge, gave Trump a week to ask the Supreme Court to get involved. The eventual trial date carries enormous political ramifications, with special counsel Jack Smith's team hoping to prosecute Trump this year and the Republican frontrunner seeking to delay it until after the November election. If Trump were to defeat Biden, he could presumably try to use his position of head of the executive branch to order a new attorney general to dismiss the federal case he faces or potentially could seek a pardon for himself. Tuesday's unanimous ruling is the second time since December that judges held that Trump can be prosecuted for actions undertaken while in the White House and in the run-up to the January 6, 2021, insurrection, when a mob of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol. The opinion was expected, given the skepticism with which the panel greeted the Trump team's arguments. Quote, For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become Citizen Trump, with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant, the court wrote but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution, unquote. The judges said the public interest in criminal accountability, quote, outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action, turning aside the claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would prevent the recognition of election results or violate the rights of citizens to vote. Jury. Shooter's mother guilty of manslaughter. Teen is serving a life sentence for rampage that left four dead. Story from the Associated Press. And the dateline is Pontiac, Michigan. A Michigan jury convicted a school shooter's mother of involuntary manslaughter Tuesday in the killings of four students in 2021. Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly, 45, had a duty under state law to prevent her son, who was 15 at the time, from harming others. She was accused of failing to secure a gun and ammunition at home and failing to support Ethan Crumbly's mental health. Sentencing is slated for April 9th. Jennifer and James Crumbly were the first parents in the United States to be charged in a mass school shooting committed by their child. James Crumbly faces trial in March. On the morning of November 30, 2021, school staff members were concerned about a violent drawing of a gun, bullet, and wounded man, accompanied by desperate phrases, 
on Ethan Crumbly's math assignment. His parents were called to the school, but they didn't take the boy home. A few hours later, Ethan Crumbly pulled a handgun from his backpack and shot ten students and a teacher. No one had checked the backpack. Ethan Crumbly, now 17, pleaded guilty and is serving a life sentence. U.S. Cellular Outage Reported in Blackhawk County Dateline Waterloo Customers of U.S. Cellular in Waterloo and Cedar Falls are reporting a service outage that began in the early afternoon on Tuesday. The website Down Detector had received more than 200 customer reports of an outage as of 2.58 p.m. Tuesday. By 6 p.m. Tuesday, reports of outages had dropped to near zero, and some customers confirmed their service was restored. The outage reportedly affected several Midwestern cities, Chicago and Omaha included. Cedar Falls residents' allegedly dangerous dog awaiting appeal of decision to euthanize. Dateline Cedar Falls. An allegedly dangerous dog will remain confined at the Cedar Bend Humane Society until a judge rules on the owner's appeal of a city decision to euthanize the beloved pet. An attorney for Chris and Leanne Western proposed Monday during a video conference with a district judge and the city's council that Reese, their brown and white American bully dog, be subject to a lower bond amount or be allowed to stay at their relative's home at 1312 Clark Drive, the same place where the dog last got in trouble with the law. The one-hour hearing on the matter was set for 11 a.m. on March 20th. The Westerns argue there was not enough evidence proving the dog to be a public hazard and took issue with parts of the process they deemed improper or illegal. The dog allegedly bit five strangers between May 2021 and October 2023 and has been confined at the Cedar Bend Humane Society, 1166 West Airline Highway, since October 15th. Police Chief Mark Howard authorized putting the dog down, as is allowed under city code. The Westerns lost their first appeal to the Cedar Falls City Council. Council members voted 6-0 to zero during a public meeting November 16th to uphold Howard's decision. Now former council member Dave Sires was absent. Attorney Jamie Hunter of the Dickey, Campbell, and Shahag Law Firm in Des Moines cited the city's request to continue holding the animal as an estimated cost of $4,610, an unreasonable bond request. The couple was willing to provide, quote, additional written assurances for public safety if allowed to stay at the Clark Drive home. The dog would need to be inside. If outside, they said the pet would be roaming in a secured and enclosed fence under the supervision of an adult. The dog was already bound to an agreement before the fifth incident and the move to the Humane Society. The fourth incident led the chief to initially order the dog to be humanely destroyed before taking a step back and instead entering the city into a contract with the Westerns. It outlined requirements for the dog to remain at home, as well as the term that any future incident 
would automatically lead to a humane destruction determination. The fifth incident happened on October 4th at the Clark Drive property. Reese reportedly went after a teenager biking on a sidewalk and bit him in the leg. Prior incidents have happened at the Western's home in the 1400 block of West 18th Street. Rather than an out-of-control vicious animal, the Westerns have said the dog is in the midst of being trained and has been the victim of unforeseen, preventable circumstances that led him to, quote, get excited or protective and bite people. The couple has racked up approximately $2,200 in charges to date for holding the dog at the Humane Society. The city estimates they will be on the hook for another $2,400 over some 120 days at $20 per day. A reasonable boarding fee should not exceed $10 per day, Hunter argued, or, in lieu of that payment, the attorney said the dog could be kept at the Clark Drive home. The judge sided with the city's attorney, Austin McMahon, and Henry Bevel of Swisher and Court in Waterloo. The court finds the city's request to continue boarding Reese at the Cedar Bend Humane Society as in the best interest of public safety at this time, and further, that the costs incurred to date have been reasonable and necessary. Judge David Odekert wrote in his order made later Monday after the hearing with the attorneys, quote, The court further finds continuing boarding costs at $20 per day are both reasonable and necessary, unquote. Both sides agreed to an expedited schedule and the March 20th hearing date, which Odekert may preside over. The court found a reasonable bond, $3,400, to be based on an additional 60 days of boarding. That's $1,200 more than the $2,200 in expenses already accrued. Mother found guilty in starvation death of a two-and-a-half-month-old twin and neglect of his brother. The story comes by way of Alexander Smith of the Globe Gazette. A Plymouth woman has been found guilty in the death of her baby and of seriously neglecting his twin in Cerro Gordo County District Court on Monday. Alyssa Marie Joyce, 30, also known as Alyssa Luke, was convicted of one count of child endangerment resulting in death and another of child endangerment resulting in injury after her two-and-a-half-month-old twins were found malnourished in 2021. A tearful Joyce was seen mouthing the words, I'm sorry, to her family after the verdict was read. Joyce was found by the jury to have deprived nutrition to two two-and-a-half-month-old children to the point that caused one infant's death and left the other near death. In Iowa, felony charges related to the endangerment causing the death of a child carry a maximum penalty of 50 years in prison. The jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict on both counts after deliberating for a little over an hour. The count of child endangerment resulted in the death of Abel Luke and the count of child endangerment resulting in the serious injury of Brendan Luke. Joyce blames the state for the child's death. She has filed a civil suit against the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services 
and its contracted counseling agencies, Families First Counseling, Mid-Iowa Family Therapy, and Lutheran Social Services, after alleging negligence in caring for the infant. The father, Scott Luke, has also filed pro se suits in the matter. According to court records, the father assaulted the mother on December 8, 2020, while she was pregnant. This caused her to go into labor, and she gave birth to the twins. Human services staff sought temporary removal of the children, and they were adjudicated to be children in need of assistance under Iowa law. They were placed with the mother and subject to Department of Human Services supervision under a plan the mother agreed to, according to the mother's lawsuit. Family members were ordered to participate in services. In February of 2021, one of the twins, a son identified as Abel Luke, died of malnutrition. The other twin, previously only identified as B.L., was treated for severe malnutrition, and the other children in the home were found to be underweight and also hospitalized, according to court records. The remaining four children were removed from the mother's custody and placed with the Department of Human Services. The mother participated in DHS services and got back together with the father. Visitation with the children was described as semi-supervised. But in April of 2022, the father was arrested for again assaulting the mother, according to court records. The father's rights were terminated in October of 2022, according to court records. In February 2023, authorities charged the mother with child endangerment in connection with the 2021 death of Abel Luke. She was released on bond in June, pending trial. And now, listeners, we're just taking a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 7th, on IRIS, that's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first editorial today comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot, written by Art Cullen. This is not what leadership looks like. Multiple school leaders in the Storm Lake area believe the Iowa legislature has not adequately kept up funding, especially with the recent inflation surges. These days, with political campaigns that seem to go on forever, Iowans may not recognize the significance of what occurred at polling places across the state on November 5th of 1968. Voters approved an amendment to the Iowa Constitution that day, ending the legislature's practice of only meeting every other year. Biennial sessions had been a fact of civic life in Iowa since statehood 122 years earlier. Advocates for the amendment made the case lawmakers needed to be in session each year to deal with the growing complexity of the challenges and pressing demands facing Iowa. In recent years, however, leaders like Governor Kim Reynolds and her allies in the legislature often talk about government overreach and the need to rein in the size and scope of state and local governments. Maybe they are correct, 
maybe voters should be asked to undo the 55-year-old constitutional amendment and return the legislature to meeting every other year. Maybe that would give lawmakers and the governor time to thoughtfully study these complex challenges and pressing demands so they do not go into hurry-up lawmaking mode whenever they spot some perceived need for a new law. You may disagree with the perception the process of making laws has gotten out of control in Iowa in recent years, but consider this. House Study Bill 587 would require every student and every teacher in every Iowa public school district to stand and sing the national anthem every school day. Never mind the U.S. Supreme Court decided in 1943 that government schools cannot compel students and staff to stand and recite the Pledge of Allegiance or sing the national anthem. You do not make Iowa kids more patriotic by demanding they sing the national anthem. This proposal is what we would expect from the dictators in North Korea or Russia. This is not something that should be coming from a state in the land of the free. If this were the only example of a misguided proposal coming before the legislature, Iowans would be forgiving. But it is not. Another bill, Senate Study Bill 3092, would allow school districts to hire or recruit volunteer, quote, chaplains to help children with their mental health needs. The legislation does not require these people to have certain training or certification, or any training for that matter. One of the bill's sponsors, Representative Helena Hayes, a Republican from New Sharon, said the chaplains would provide kids with spiritual guidance, although it seems that should be left to churches, not our public schools. Senate Study Bill 3103 would prohibit the Iowa Department of Natural Resources from accepting and investigating anonymous complaints about potential violations of regulations governing animal feeding operations, waterway pollution, and illegal waste disposal. A year ago, in contrast, the legislature changed Iowa law and made all citizen complaints confidential about the books people want to remove from public school libraries and classrooms, leaving Iowans to figure out why anonymous complaints of one variety are good, but anonymous complaints of another are bad. The concern should not be aimed just at the topics consuming the time of Iowa's lawmakers. The concern should be that complex, thorny problems are getting precious little discussion and study from the legislature. Iowans who are D's and R's have been scrambling to convey to their senators and representatives and to the governor their anxiety over the significant changes Reynolds wants to make in the operations of Iowa's nine area education agencies. The AEAs provide a wide variety of specialized services most school districts cannot afford on their own. Services provided by AEA psychologists, social workers, speech and language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and behavioral specialists. Instead of convening a public study of ways to strengthen these services and make AEAs more efficient, Reynolds, instead, turned to an out-of-state consultant to work outside of public view. And instead of making the report public when she announced her AEA plans, 
Reynolds slow-walked Iowans' requests for copies of the report. The governor refused to accept federal food assistance that would have provided an extra $40 per month per child for low-income families' food purchases this summer while school is out. Nonprofit food pantries have been scrambling to keep up with higher-than-expected demand from low-income families. But the legislature has not spent any time discussing ways to make more ample food supply available to our poor friends and neighbors. The governor said the federal summertime food aid was not sustainable long-term, but an existing state program has serious long-term sustainability questions, and those are not being discussed by the legislature. The program provides families with $7,600 in annual vouchers for each of their children to attend private schools. In its first year, the vouchers cost the state $127 million. That is $20 million more than originally expected. More Iowans will become eligible for the vouchers in the next few years, and the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency projects the cost to the state treasury will climb to $345 million per year by 2027. But the legislature has not spent time talking about how that cost can be sustained, nor has the legislature spent any time talking about strategies for dealing with troubling findings from a University of Iowa cancer study last year. Fifty years of data show Iowa has the second-highest cancer incidence rate among the 50 states and is the only state whose rate is rising. Republican leaders at the State House would be wise to think about the observations on leadership General Dwight Eisenhower once offered, the Supreme Allied Commander during World War II, and two-term president in the 1950s, knew something about leadership. Quote, You do not lead by hitting people over the head, Eisenhower observed. Any damn fool can do that, but it's usually called assault, not leadership. I'll tell you what leadership is. It's persuasion and conciliation, education and patience. It's long, slow, tough work, unquote. Next is an editorial written by Paul Krugman of the New York Times. Immigrants make America stronger and richer. Modern nations can't, practically or politically, have open borders, which allow anyone who chooses to immigrate. The good news is that America doesn't have open borders, and there is no significant faction in our politics saying we should. In fact, immigrating to the United States legally is fairly difficult. The bad news is that we're having a hard time enforcing the rules on immigration, mainly because the relevant government agencies don't have sufficient resources. And right now, the reason they don't have those resources is that many Republicans in Congress, while fumigating about a border crisis, appear determined to deny the needed funding. Their position is rooted in extraordinary political cynicism, and they aren't even trying to hide it. Donald Trump has intervened with Republicans to block any immigration deal because he believes that chaos at the border will help his election prospects. While blatant sabotage explains the current immigration impasse, however, there's something else lurking behind it. Trump and those around him 
are profoundly hostile to immigration in general. Partly this is xenophobia, if not outright racism. If you repeatedly declare, as Trump has, that immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, you don't really care if they come here legally. You're all but saying that what matters is whether they're white. But it's not just that. People close to Trump have a zero-sum view of the economy, in which every job taken by someone born outside the United States is a job taken away from someone born here. Back in 2020, Stephen Miller, one of the architects of Trump's immigration policies, told Trump supporters that one of the goals was to, quote, turn off the faucet of new immigrant labor, unquote. Remarkably, Trump issued an executive order meant to deny visas to highly skilled foreigners, many working in the tech sector. Miller and his boss apparently believed that this would mean more plum jobs for Americans when what it would actually do was undermine American competitiveness in advanced technology. So this seems like a good time to point out that negative views of the economics of immigration are all wrong. Far from taking jobs away, foreign-born workers have played a key role in America's recent success at combining fast growth with a rapid decline in inflation. And foreign-born workers will also be crucial to the effort to deal with our country's longer-term problems. About that recent success, it has taken a while, but many observers are finally acknowledging that the United States has done extraordinarily well at recovering from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Inflation has faded away in much of the world, but the United States stands out for its ability to combine disinflation with vigorous economic growth. And one key to that performance has been rapid growth in the U.S. labor force, which has risen by 2.9 million since the eve of the pandemic four years ago. How much of that growth was due to foreign-born workers? All of it. The native-born labor force declined slightly over the past four years, reflecting an aging population where we added 3 million foreign-born workers. Did those foreign-born workers take jobs away from Americans, in particular native-born Americans? No. America in early 2024 has full employment, with consumers who say that jobs are plentiful, outnumbering those saying jobs are hard to get, by almost 5 to 1. The unemployment rate among native-born workers averaged just under 3.7% in 2023, as low as it's been since the government began collecting the data. In fact, I'd argue that the influx of foreign-born workers has helped the native-born. There's a large research literature on the economic impact of immigration, which consistently fails to find the often predicted negative effects on employment and wages. Instead, immigrant workers often turn out to be complementary to the native-born workforce, bringing different skills that, in effect, help avoid supply bottlenecks and allow faster job creation. Silicon Valley, for instance, hires a lot of foreign-born engineers because they bring something additional to the table. The same is true for workers in many less glamorous occupations.
and immigrant workers have probably been especially important these past few years as the economy has struggled to resolve disruptions caused by the pandemic. Foreign-born workers are crucial to America's fiscal future. To a first approximation, the federal government is a system that collects taxes from working-age adults and spends much of the proceeds on programs that help seniors, such as Medicare and Social Security, cut off the flow of immigrants who are largely working-age adults, and our system would become much less sustainable. So while the mess at the border needs to be fixed, and could be fixed if the Republicans would help solve the problem instead of exploit it for political advantage, don't let that mess obscure the larger reality that immigration is one of America's great sources of power and prosperity. This next one was written by Art Cullen of the Storm Lake Times pilot, Predictable Demise. Our dim hope for a border bill was, predictably, quashed when Donald Trump piled on late last week. Blame it on me, Trump wished. Yet another bipartisan Senate compromise on immigration falls by the wayside. It was not Trump. It was the House Republicans who would never go along. They demand action at the border. When the Senate proposes it, the House rejects it. The Oklahoma GOP Central Committee castigated Senator James Lankford, a Republican from Oklahoma, for being a party to bipartisan discussions. Speaker Mike Johnson had declared the bill dead on arrival in the House, even though he has not read it. Quote, when we're finally going to the end, they're like, oh, just kidding. I actually don't want to change in law because it's a presidential election year. We all have an oath to the Constitution and we have a commitment to say we're going to do whatever we can to be able to secure the border, Langford told Fox News. House Republicans are not serious about solving the problem. Neither is Trump. They want to preserve it to keep the anger boiling. They think it's good politics. Langford is right. People expect solutions, even imperfect ones, that make some progress. Republicans should worry if yet another failed shot at border security justifiably gets pinned on them. They are playing into the hands of Biden and the Democrats to blunt every one of their arguments on immigration. They had a deal and rejected it out of hand. Next, from the New York Times, Thomas L. Friedman writes, The GOP bumper sticker, Trump first, Putin second, America third. Every so often, there's a piece of legislation on Capitol Hill that defines America and its values, that shows what kind of country we want to be. I would argue that when it comes to the $118.3 billion bipartisan compromise bill in the Senate to repair our broken immigration system and supply vital aid to Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, its passage or failure won't define just America, but also the world that we're going to inhabit. There are hinges in history, and this is one of them. What Washington does, or does not do, this year to support its allies and secure our border, will say so much about our approach to security and stability in this new post-post-Cold War era. Will America carry the red, white, and blue flag into the future? 
or just a white flag, given the pessimistic talk coming out of the Capitol. It is looking more and more like the white flag, autographed by Donald Trump, barring some last-minute surprise that saves the compromise bill. A terrible thing is about to happen, thanks largely to a Republican Party that has lost its way as it falls in lockstep behind a man whose philosophy is not, quote, America first, but Donald Trump first. Trump first means that a bill that would strengthen America and its allies must be set aside so that America can continue to boil in polarization, Vladimir Putin can triumph in Ukraine, and our southern border can remain an open sore, until and unless Trump becomes president once more. Our allies be damned, our enemies be emboldened, our children's future sovereignty be mortgaged. Today's GOP bumper sticker, Trump first, Putin second, America third. Quote, the United States has for some time ceased to be a serious country. Our extreme polarization combined with institutional rules that privilege minorities makes it impossible for us to meet our international obligations, the political theorist Francis Fukuyama remarked on the American Purpose website. Quote, the Republican Party has grown very adept at hostage-holding. The hardcore MAGA wing represents a minority within a minority, yet our institutional rules permit them to veto decisions clearly favored by a majority of Americans, unquote. Alas, though, while the current dysfunction of the Republican Party can explain why this particular legislation is likely to fail, how we came to this awful moment is a longer, deeper story. This emerging post-post-Cold War era is a real throwback to the kind of dangerous, traditional, great power competition prevalent in the Cold War and World War II, and most of history before that. Unfortunately, we have arrived at this moment with too many elected officials, especially in the senior ranks of the Republican Party, who never experienced such a world, and with a defense industrial base woefully unprepared for this world. Believe it or not, President Biden's National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, has had to spend hours of valuable time each month searching the world for 155mm shells for the Ukrainian army because we don't have enough. That's crazy. And it's particularly crazy at a time when three revisionist powers, Russia, China, and Iran, are each simultaneously probing every day to see if they can push back America and its allies along three different frontiers, Europe, the South China Sea, and the Middle East. They probe, individually and through proxies, to see how we react, if we react, and then probe some more. In Putin's case, when the time seemed right, he launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Quote, because of generational change, most of America's political elite today grew up in the relatively benign Pax Americana post-Cold War era, 1989-2022. To 2022, when Putin invaded Ukraine, and they have lost the habit and knack of thinking about global politics in military terms. The U.S. foreign policy historian 
Michael Mandenbaum told me, quote, very few members of the elite today have served in the military, unquote. This is, quote, very different from the Cold War era, when most of our policy-making elite were people who experienced World War II, added Mendelbaum, the author of the forthcoming book, The Titans of the 20th Century, How They Made History and the History They Made. Now, after 30 years of the post-Cold War era, Joe Biden is one of the few remaining leaders who was a policymaker during the Cold War, and issues of grand strategy and the management of great power competition are no longer a major part of our public discourse. Trump, like Biden, grew up in the Cold War, but he spent a lot of it contemplating his wealth rather than contemplating the world. Trump's instincts, Mandelbaum noted, are really a throwback to the interwar period between World War I and World War II, when a whole segment of the elite felt World War I was a failure and a mistake the equivalent today of Iraq and Afghanistan, and then approached the dawn of World War II as isolationists and protectionists, seeing our allies as either hopeless or leeches. As for House Speaker Mike Johnson, I wonder how often he uses his passport. I wonder if he has a passport. He is one of the most powerful people in America, following in the footsteps of both Republican and Democratic speakers who advanced our interests and made us strong in the world for decades. So far, he seems to care only about serving Trump's interests, even if that means playing extremely risky games with foreign policy. Meanwhile, many on the left emerged from this post-Cold War era with the view that the biggest problem in the world is not too little American power, but too much. The lessons they drew from Iraq and Afghanistan. And so, who will tell the people? Who will tell the people that America is the tent pole that holds up the world? If we let that pole disintegrate, your kids won't grow up in just a different America. They'll grow up in a different world, and a much worse one. After Ukraine inflicted a terrible defeat on the Russian army, thanks to U.S. and NATO funding and weapons, without costing a single American soldier's life. Putin now has to be licking his chops at the thought that we will walk away from Ukraine, leaving him surely counting the days until Kiev's missile stocks run out and he will own the skies. Then it's bombs away. As the Financial Times columnist Gideon Rockman reported, the ammunition shortage in Ukraine has already led to an increase in Ukrainian casualties. The shortage of weaponry is also having an effect on the willingness of Ukrainians to volunteer for military service. The mounting pressure on Kyiv government is part of the explanation for the public falling out between President Volodymyr Zelensky and his commander-in-chief, Valery Zaluzny. If this is the future, and our friends from Europe to the Middle East to Asia sense that we are going into hibernation, they will all start to, to cut deals. European allies with Putin, Arab allies with Iran, Asian allies with China. We won't fill the change overnight, but unless we pass this bill or something close to it, we will feel it over time. America's ability to assemble alliances 
against the probes of Russia, China, and Iran will gradually be diminished. Our ability to sustain sanctions on pariah nations like North Korea will erode. The rules governing trade, banking, and the sanctity of borders being violated by force, rules that America set, enforced and benefited from since World War II, will increasingly be set by others and by their interests. Yes, America still has considerable power, but that power has led to influence because allies and enemies knew we were ready to use it to defend ourselves and help our friends defend themselves and our shared values. All of that will now be in doubt if this bill goes down for good. Remember this week, folks, because historians surely will. Now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Wednesday, February 7th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. We want to remind you that you can access a recording of this reading of the Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.